The Heretic's Forfeit, a tale of jealousy, murder, and revenge, written and performed by Paul Francis Matthews. Episode 7. Olivia's phone had started receiving alerts about Christopher Marlowe's newly discovered sonnet barely 20 minutes into the train journey from Cambridge back to London. Then the alerts on her phone stopped because her phone was not charged up enough and had died. To make matters even more annoying, the train was stuck for 45 minutes in a siding just outside Stevenage. Meanwhile, Shakespeare was all alone in Olivia's flat. A film crew was camped in the front garden and over the next hour and a half, Shakespeare watched as more and more film crews arrived until soon the house was besieged by a plague of broadcast media journalists. They hammered on the door and then the doorbell on the phone started to ring incessantly. Somebody called Krishnan Guru Murthy, who said he was from something called Channel 4 News, shouted through the letterbox demanding to talk to Olivia. Shakespeare retreated to the kitchen, but some of the swarm had scaled the wall and were now in the back garden too. Luckily the key was in the back door, so Shakespeare quickly locked it before the house was invaded. He pulled the curtains and sought refuge in the toilet. Suddenly, a half-brick came flying through the window. Then a hand came through the crack in the glass and pushed the lock handle open. The window frame slid up and a face appeared. It was Olivia. Mistress Olivia! Hello, William. Now listen to me. There's such a fearful clamour, what with loud knocking at the door and entreaties from without, the constant ringing of diverse bells which offend my ears with her hellish discord, and Krishnan Guru Murthy. Shut up and listen, William. I want you to bring that small cabinet in the corner over to here, then get on top of it and climb through the window. And do it quickly, because there's a taxi waiting and its meters running. Shakespeare did as he was told, and then dropped down into the little alleyway that ran along the side of the house. It led onto the street where the taxi was waiting. Just as Olivia and Shakespeare were about to climb into the taxi, however, the posse of journalists came round the corner and spotted them. With Krishnan Guru Murthy in the vanguard, they charged forward. Olivia pushed Shakespeare into the back of the taxi and then jumped in behind him. Drive! She yelled at the driver. Drive where? The driver yelled back at her. Just drive around. I can't just drive around. You've got to give me a specific destination. Oh God, I don't know. I can't think. Shakespeare noticed above the driver's cab an advert for a certain popular tourist attraction. Take us to the London Eye! The London Eye moves at a speed of 26 centimetres per second and takes approximately 30 minutes to complete a revolution. There are 32 capsules, and when a capsule reaches its optimum elevation, passengers can see 40 kilometres in every direction. Olivia and Shakespeare shared a capsule with a gaggle of Japanese teenagers, who were completely uninterested in the breathtaking view, and instead spent the entire 30 minutes either flirting with each other or staring at their smartphones. William Shakespeare, on the other hand, was utterly captivated. Captivated. There was something touchingly childlike about the way he pressed his nose and the palms of his hands against the glass, and yet it only served to exacerbate Olivia's feelings of guilt. I am so, so sorry, William. It's not that I didn't believe you, of course I did, but I just needed a second opinion. So I sent your sonnet to this old friend of my dad's. I should have realised that this silly old bugger wouldn't keep his mouth shut, and now everybody knows. I've been such an idiot. It's a total mess, and I don't know how to put it right. Do you have any suggestions? Yes. I would like to go home.
The one person on earth who Professor Jasper Cosgrove did not feel superior to was Sir Christopher Marlowe. In fact, Marlowe literally terrified him. Cosgrove was merely degenerate, but Marlowe was something else entirely. Marlowe was downright satanic. Most people didn't see it, though. They just saw a charming, handsome billionaire and philanthropist, but Cosgrove knew better. And right now, the evil bastard was in Cosgrove's office, sitting on Cosgrove's chair, with his feet up on Cosgrove's desk. There were two other chairs in the room, but Conrad had bagged both of them, one massive Bavarian butt cheek to each. So Cosgrove was forced to stand. That Marlowe could commandeer the professor's office with such impunity derived from the fact that ever since it was founded in 1826, University College London has always had the eldest male son of the Marlowe family on the Council of Governors. Marlowe hummed Nicki Minaj's catchy new song to himself as he idly flicked through the pages of the latest edition of Portico, the UCL alumni magazine, until he came to a page with a photograph of Olivia. <whistles> Dr. Olivia Belmont. Ding dong. We seek her here, we seek her there, we seek Dr. Olivia Belmont everywhere, but so far to no avail. Do you have any idea where she might be, Jasper? Have you tried her house? With no warning whatsoever, Marlowe hurled the magazine at Cosgrove. Of course we've tried her house, you idiot. Yes, uh, of course. Uh, that's the first place you'd have looked. Uh, how stupid of me. Yes, very stupid. So when did you see her last? In this very office, about four days ago. There was a coffin, you see. A coffin? Yes, a coffin from the Elizabethan era was unearthed recently at Billingsgate. Billingsgate? It was discovered during construction work on the Fang, at the site of the old fish market. There was a graveyard there once. What the flying fuck does this have to do with anything? The coffin contained a body. Coffins usually do. Male or female? Male or female what? Marlow Huddle the stapler this time. The body, you fucking cretin! What sex was it? M-m-m-m-man! Astonishingly well-preserved he was too, but according to Dr. Belmont, he dissolved. What do you mean, he dissolved? Just that. He dissolved. I didn't believe a word of it. I mean, bodies don't just dissolve. They do if you immerse them in sulfuric acid, but go on. I, I think that Olivia reburied the body. Why the hell would she do that? Probably out of some starry-eyed sense of decency or something. Uh, furthermore, I am now convinced that she found the sonnet that your ancestor wrote either in the coffin or on the body, in one of the pockets. Marlowe didn't say anything. He picked up a paperweight and began toying with it, casually tossing it from hand to hand, his eyes all the time fixed on Cosgrove. Then he did a distinctly creepy thing. He started to recite a nursery rhyme. A little cock sparrow sat on a tree, looking as happy as happy could be, till a boy came by with his bow and arrow, says he, I will shoot the little cock sparrow. Cosgrove could feel, almost hear, the blood in his veins run cold and start to curdle. The paperweight was a marble Apollo statue head souvenir from Crete. It weighed over one and a half 
pounds. Marlowe had narrowly missed with a magazine in the stapler, but if he got lucky with his third throw, there was every chance Cosgrove could sustain a serious head injury. Christ, he could end up dead. Before Marlowe threw that one-and-a-half-pound paperweight at Cosgrove, Cosgrove had to throw Marlowe a bone. And quickly. Oh, yes, Sir Christopher, I almost forgot. The person you really, really want to talk to is Toby Bright. He's a lab technician at the university. Him and Olivia are as thick as thieves. Marlowe nodded, but he didn't stop playing with the paperweight. Back and forth it went. Left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand. His body will make me a nice little stew, and his giblets will make me a little pie, too. Says the little cock sparrow, I'll be shot if I stay. So he clapped his wings and then flew away. Right hand, left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand. And then, like a cat that has lost interest in the mouse it's torturing, Marlowe put the paperweight back down in the desk and stood up. Thank you for your assistance, Jasper. It's been invaluable. Conrad, my coat, please. It was my pleasure, Sir Christopher. I'm always glad to help. Uh, By the way, Jasper, I'll be making an official announcement to the council in a few days, but there's no reason why you shouldn't hear the news first. It concerns the Marlowe Corporation's endowment. Which is most generous, if I may say so. Well, it's about to get even more generous. From next year, my stranglehold... Sorry, slip of the tongue. My funding will be increased by 25 Why, that's fantastic news, Sir Christopher. 25%, eh? A tidy sum. That should be enough to keep you in gimp suits and nipple clamps for a lifetime. I'm not sure that I know what you mean, Sir Christopher. Of course you do, Jasper. But don't worry, your dirty little secret is safe with me. And the next time you see Madame Ivanka, give her my warmest regards. You can have your chair back now. Toby was only working a half day. He had walked to work instead of taking the car, and on his way home he popped into his local branch of Greg's to pick up some lunch. As he was leaving the bakery, a big black Bentley pulled up at the curb. Conrad jumped out of the vehicle and immediately set about invading Toby's personal space. Then the Bentley's curbside rear window slid down and Marlowe stuck his head out. Hello, Mr. Bright, or may I call you Toby? I'm Sir Christopher Marlowe. You may recognise me from the Graham Norton Show. Would you mind awfully if we go on a little trip? The manner in which Conrad was looming over him made it obvious to Toby that he had no choice in the matter. So what's this? A magical mystery tour? Oh, there's no mystery. Our destination is quite definite. You're probably wondering what this is all about. Not really. I heard you were snooping around university looking for Olivia. Toby wanted to know if I've seen her. To save time, the answer's no. Oh, that's a pity. But where are my manners? Would you care for a drink? Why not? A bottle of beer would go well with me, I'm salad roll. Conrad, do the honours. Conrad opened a small fridge and took out a bottle of beer. He pulled the cap off with his teeth, spat it out, and then handed the bottle to Toby. Thanks, mate. Nice party trick. A bit unhygienic, mind you. Toby had a swig of the beer and then looked at the label. What the hell's this? 
Dracklebrow. It's a limited edition premium organic wheat beer produced by an artisan brewery in the southern Carpathian mountains of Romania. I'm more of a Boddington's man myself, each to their own. I've been told that you and Dr. Belmont are as thick as thieves. You're accusing us of summit? Not at all. It's just that your friend Olivia is in possession of an item that I would very much like to get my hands on. You mean the sonnet? Precisely. And as I am the direct male descendant of Christopher Marlowe, the sonnet sort of belongs to me. I thought all your ancestors' stuff belonged to the nation. Touché. But try to see it my way. Don't you think it's only fair that I should get, so to speak, first dibs on it? Marlowe took out his wallet and removed a card. Here's my card, Toby. Now, if you hear from Olivia, please, please get in touch with me. Oh, and look, we've arrived at our destination. Conrad got out first, followed by Toby. Marlow leaned out of the car and pointed at the block of flats opposite. That's where your flat is. It might be. No, it definitely is. Your flat is three stories up. It's number 36. We went to all the trouble to find out where you live just so we could drive you home. Wasn't that thoughtful of us? By the way, if you haven't got that framed original Au revoir les enfants poster on your bedroom wall insured, then you should do toot sweet. You wouldn't want it to get damaged, would you? <laughs> Toodle pip. Conrad got back in the car, and the car drove off. If Marlowe's intention was to put the frighteners on Toby, he had succeeded. Toby threw the bottle of disgusting Transylvanian muck into a nearby bin, then took out his phone and called Olivia. It went straight to voicemail. The house where William Shakespeare was born was now a Burger King. Olivia and Shakespeare had stayed the previous night at the Travel Lodge near Marlebone Station, from where they caught an early morning train to Stratford-upon-Avon. They were both peckish, having skipped breakfast, so they went in and ordered some food. Olivia mentioned to the spotty youth who served them that four and a half centuries earlier, a great writer had been born in that very building. Oh yeah, what was his name? William Shakespeare. Never heard of him, and he can't have been that great, otherwise it'd be one of those blue plaques stuck on the wall outside. They sat down at a table by the window. Shakespeare was in a somewhat woebegone mood, which not even a whopper with large fries could alleviate. He stared out of the window at the people walking up and down Henley Street. What are you thinking, William? I dreamt. What? I dreamt. I'm sorry, William, but I don't understand. Shakespeare turned to look at her, and for the first time, Olivia noticed what amazing green eyes he had. For 400 years, I dreamt. Oh, I see. You're talking about the 400 years when you were asleep. Yes. Such a long time to dream. What did you dream about? I dreamt that I was dead. But you weren't dead, William. Shakespeare turned his face back to the window. I was. Yet I was not. William Shakespeare's trip back home was turning into a rather maudlin affair. His next port of call was the Church of the Holy Trinity to visit the final resting place of his parents, John and Mary. Inevitably, and just to add to the air of despondency, rain started bucketing down. But it wasn't just his parents Shakespeare had come to visit, and even though he knew she must have been buried there, his heart still sank a little when he came across the stone with her name engraved upon it. Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's wife and the mother of his three children, had died in 1623. Shakespeare placed a small bouquet of flowers from Tesco on the grave, and then bowed his head in prayer. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, yea, though he were dead, yet shall he live. 
and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall not die forever. Amen. He wiped away a tear with the back of his sleeve. Olivia handed him a tissue. Thank you, Olivia. You must have loved her very much, William. Fame and riches were my greater love. Oh, what a wretched creature am I, bereft, alone, and entrapped in a prison of remorse fashioned by mine own blind ambition. <laughs> oh, for God's sake, William, that's enough. What mean you by enough? It's time to stop mooning around feeling sorry for yourself. That's what I mean. It's time to start getting proactive. Proactive? Yes. We're going to make everything right. We're going to tell the whole world about the enormous injustice that's been done to you, and the first person we're going to tell it to is Sir Christopher Marlowe himself. We're going to get the next train back to London. We're going to confront him with what his conniving, murderous bastard of an ancestor did, and then we're going to reclaim what's rightfully yours. As a great man once said, truth is like the sun. You can shut it out for a time, but it isn't going to go away. Wise words indeed. And what great man said this? Elvis Presley. Who? Hello, my name is Monica Malone and I'm from Newry in Northern Ireland. This is my cat, Betty. Say hello to Simon, Betty. Today, Betty and me are going to play a duet on the xylophone. Monica Malone's cat playing the xylophone from the latest series of Simon Cowell's hit show Britain's Got Talent was set to become the most watched video in the history of YouTube. Not that Christopher Marlowe would have seen it. He was of the opinion that the World Wide Web and all the effluence that flowed from it was the work of the Greek god of stupidity, Koalamos, or as Marlowe preferred to call him, Dumbo. He was not best pleased, therefore, when Ursula barged into the boardroom, brandishing her laptop and insisting that Marlowe check out something she just found on the internet. Do you mind, Ursula? I'm right in the middle of something. Conrad is updating me on the search for Dr. Belmont, so wait your turn. Please continue, Conrad. Thank you, Sir Christopher. I tracked down the taxi driver who picked up Dr. Belmont from King's Cross Station after she had got back from her meeting in Cambridge with Professor Salinger. From King's Cross Station, he drove her to her house. When they got to her house and she saw all the reporters and people from Channel 4 News outside the front door of her house, she ordered the taxi driver to go around to the back of her house. Dr. Belmont got out of the taxi and and returned a few minutes later with a young man. Oh, sorry, did you say <coughs> a young man? Yes, the taxi driver described him as being of average height and build with curly red hair. Curly red hair? Yes. Marlowe, who was sitting behind his desk, leaned back in his chair and stared at the ceiling. He had an eidetic memory and could recall every detail of Toby Bright's appearance. The young lab technician was also of average height and build, but the tufts of hair visible from underneath the baseball cap he had been wearing were dark brown. So who was this mysterious curly redhead? Shall I continue with my report, Sir Christopher? What? Uh, oh, yes, yes. The taxi driver then dropped them at the London Eye. And then what? And then nothing. We do not know where they went after that. This is the end of my report. 
Can I show you this thing on the internet now, Kit? His eidetic memory notwithstanding, Marlow had actually forgotten Ursula was in the room. What? Oh, sorry, Ursula. <laughs> I forgot you were here. I forgot where I was for a second. So what's this fascinating thing you found on the internet that you're dying to show me? I want you to look at this video on YouTube. Oh, for Christ's sake, Ursula, I have absolutely no interest in seeing a cat playing the fucking xylophone. It's not a cat playing a xylophone. It's something else. She clicked on a YouTube clip tabbed as Loonies at the Globe. This was filmed on someone's phone four days ago, during a school's matinee performance at the Globe Theatre of Much Ado About Nothing. Watch carefully. This is all terribly enthralling, Ursula, but what am I supposed to be looking at? Ursula paused the video. Check out the young woman who's just climbed up onto the stage. Look closely at her face. Marlow had a good long look at the young woman's face. His eyes widened. Well, Kit, do you recognize who it is? Bloody hell. It's her. Yes. It's Dr. Olivia Belmont. Show me the rest of it. I want to see what happens next. Sib, Sib, you've got to get this on your phone. I'm already on it. What's she doing? She's trying to grab hold of the red-headed bloke. <laughs> what a pair of loonies. The face of the red-headed bloke that Olivia Belmont was trying to grab hold of filled the computer screen. Marlowe's eyes bored into it, his hands gripping the laptop so tightly that his knuckles turned white. And then his face turned even whiter. Are you feeling all right, Kit? Your face has turned terribly pale. Marlow didn't reply. His breathing became rapid, and then cold sweat started pouring in torrents from his brow, and then his whole body began to shake uncontrollably. Oh my god! Conrad, call 999! And get a move on, because I think the bus is having a heart attack! I'm fine, I'm fine! You don't fucking look it! I consider Miss Mandrake's diagnosis to be totally accurate. You do not look well, Sir Christopher. I said I'm fine! Marlow got up from his chair and then half walked, half stumbled across the room to the drinks cabinet. He poured a copious amount of whiskey into a tumbler and then threw it down his throat in one gulp. He looked up at the enormous portrait of his ancestor. Maybe it was a trick of the light, but there didn't seem to be a devilish little smile playing on the old scoundrel's lips anymore. Marlow turned to face the others. When you find Dr. Olivia Belmont, and you will find her, there is every possibility that you will be accompanied by the young red-headed man in the video we have just seen. His name is William Shakespeare. You are to kill them both. Do you understand? Yes, said Conrad without hesitation. Why do you want us to kill them? Asked Ursula after a moment's hesitation. Because I want them dead, obviously. Marlow poured himself another drink. The intercom buzzed. Ursula answered it. Yes? There are two people in reception wanting to see Sir Christopher. Sir Christopher is busy. They're very insistent. Tell him to make an appointment. Their names are Dr. Olivia Belmont and Mr. William Shakespeare. The end of episode 7 of The Heretic's Forfeit.